Bitcoiners, welcome back to another episode of FedWatch. This week, I am really, really honored to bring on someone that we've actually wanted to bring onto the show for some time now, uh, and he has uh, graciously accepted a jump on, Mr. Luke Groman. Luke, this this talk was inspired because Bitcoin Tina, of all people, tagged me in one of your threads and said, you need to get Luke onto FedWatch. And in that thread, you were talking about uh, potentially why the U.S. might get into Bitcoin. Before we get into that, you know, I, I want to jump into you know an introduction of your role into the space. I know Ansel has kind of put together a little bio. I'll pass it to him, and then uh, we can get we can get to you. Sure. Yeah, Luke. Nice to meet you. Um, you are the founder and president of Forest for the Trees, and you are a macro expert. There's so much going on in the world right now. Um, Bitcoin's a little bit quiet, but it seems like, you know, outside of the headlines, but, uh, you know, your expertise is what is, you know, really taking up a lot of the bandwidth right now. So uh, we're lucky to have you on the guest. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Luke, before we jump into this kind of scenario you teased out on Twitter, why don't you introduce yourself, talk about Forest Through the Trees and uh, your, your kind of high level introduction? Sure. So uh, I'm founder president of FFTT. Uh, we're a macro thematic investment research firm to aggregates a large amount of publicly available data in a unique manner, trying to identify developing economic bottlenecks in different sectors and macroeconomically. And something we've been spending a lot of time on over the last really uh, eight years at this point now um, has been viewing ongoing systemic change, ongoing uh, the, the ongoing systemic change that is driving uh, increasing um, pressure on Western financial and fiscal positions at the sovereign level, in particular, uh, and in particular, the United States. So um, we spent a lot of time around that. When you are talking about that, that uh, it bleeds into a lot of different branches of macro thematic uh, energy, uh, debt, etc. So it's uh, that's the, the, the 32nd version of, of who we are and what we do. Awesome. And I mean, that's really what we like to talk about on this show. Uh, it's the macro show that ties in Bitcoin. Uh, but Luke, speaking about, you know, these, these thematic macro uh, kind of threads that you look into, uh, this thread or, that you dropped on Twitter was very, very interesting. And you kind of tease out this scenario where, Russia has cornered the gold market um, and that, you know, in today's world where there is digital gold in Bitcoin has left the door open for the U.S. to potentially weaponize gold in response uh, to the fact that Russia and maybe the BRIC countries are leaning on gold. Can you talk a little bit about uh, this? And, you know, you've historically been quite a gold bug. And I'm kind of curious overall, like uh, how, how you have started thinking about Bitcoin in the macrosphere. Sure. So to me, I think there's two big misperceptions in macro today. I think big, big misperception one is that the real value in the system is the dollar. Uh, the real value in the petro petrodollar system is the dollar. Uh, and what I think Russia is doing is the real value is the oil, is the petro. The other big, I think, misperception, I wouldn't even say it's a misperception, there's just, it's no perception uh, virtually, is that for 50 years, really 40 years, I suppose, um, 40 years, 
investors have not had to think about the United States sovereign balance sheet at all. Deficits don't matter. The debt doesn't matter. We've heard all of these things over and over. There have been changes that have been steadily accelerating really over the, since the great financial crisis, uh, accelerating more over the last eight years. It means the U.S. debt actually matters again. And uh, it's a dumpster fire. The U.S. sovereign balance sheet is a dumpster fire, um, and to, to be kind. And there are others that are in a similar position, uh, some with worth banking systems, uh, et cetera. But in the end, the dollar is the reserve currency issuer. The U.S. is the reserve currency issuer. And so you're in this, uh, this, this unique historical time where the reserve currency issuer sovereign balance sheet uh, is in very poor shape. And so that, I think, uh, these two factors, that energy is the real value, not the dollar, and the sovereign balance sheet of the United States are really being weaponized by, uh, uh, I think they're part of what has emboldened uh, Russia to do what they've done, knowing that the balance sheet of the United States cannot withstand the loss of Russian energy from global markets. And so I think that that is really the genesis of this thread uh, that I would put out, I think, shortly before Russia actually invaded a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I think that's what's really emboldened him to act. That's, I think, sort of where we are in terms of where it ties into Bitcoin. To me, there's been this ongoing move in the system away from treasury bonds as primary reserve asset toward gold. Uh, at the global central bank level, at the sovereign level, um, at, at sort of the rule maker level, if you will. And in the last, call it uh, probably two to, th probably two to three years, uh, have done a lot more on Bitcoin uh, as it's, uh, uh, when you look at the factors I describe, uh, in a word, they're terrific. They're, 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 they're hugely fundamentally bullish for Bitcoin as a neutral reserve asset for the people, as I think I, I, I called it two or three years ago. Uh, personally, I've actually owned it. I first bought Bitcoin in, in uh, late 2013. <laughs> in fact, I saw it the other day. It was, you know, I bought, uh, you know, 10 Bitcoin at, you know, at, I think $7,000 or something, right? Which you look back and you laugh now and you go, oh, uh, had I only kept, uh, had I only kept it all. Uh, but uh, I, I've owned, I've owned it a little bit of that straight through. So I've always just kind of kept an eye on it. I never dug into it a bunch. I spent a lot of time more on sort of the macro side and then that developed to the Bitcoin side as opposed to starting at the Bitcoin side and developing into the macro. So Luke, what would you say those uh, misconceptions, are they um, like attached to the post-World War II US hegemony, the US liberal trade order? And which comes first? Is it the the realization that those misconceptions are there, or is it that the post-World War II era is ending, or you know, which is it there? I think the I think Eurasia, broadly speaking, Europe, Asia, Russia, uh, the Middle East, India, broadly understood that the post-war neoliberal rules-based global order, however you want to phrase it. I think they all understood that it ended uh, with the great financial crisis. And you can see this in terms of central banks starting to buy gold again for the first time in 30 years, every year since 2008. Uh, you can see it in terms of the response, for example, of say, Russia in 2014, when oil crashed and everybody said, okay, Russia's gonna sell all their gold. And what Russia do? 
they kept buying gold and they sold all their treasuries. Um, the uh, uh, the Saudis at the end of 2014, everybody said the Saudis are going to wield the oil weapon, you know, and, and choke off Russia. And they didn't. They wielded the oil weapon and and choked off U.S. shale. Uh, and so there's been lots of hints along the way in terms of the development of or pointing to Eurasia realizing this already and, and preparing for it. Along the way, the U.S. has been fighting it. Um, try, and, and I think what Eurasia has been trying to, to, to move toward has been a multi-currency energy pricing with trade imbalances generated in commodity uh, and energy trade netted out against real trade and then any uh, deficits or surpluses, depending on which side you are, left over at that point, settled in gold at a floating rate in all currencies. And it's a system that has been advocated for uh, since early 2009 by the People's Bank of China, the Russians, uh, the Europeans, arguably, since at least 1999. Really, if you go back in history, you can find them talking about this in 1974. So there is this broad Eurasian support for a system where oil is priced in multiple currencies, everybody gets to print money for oil, not just the Americans, and then deficits are settled in trade first, and then secondly in gold at a floating rate in every currency. And, and basically, this is the bank or system that uh, John Maynard Keynes advocated at Bretton Woods and was overruled by the Americans on, uh, a version of that at least. In fact, the Chinese specifically cited Keynes's uh, Bretton Woods bank or in their 2009 missive uh, with, with the BIS asking for a new system. Um, I think in America, we've been a lot slower in getting the joke um, due to dogma, hubris, the benefits we've gotten from it. Uh, I think up until COVID, you would have, I think if you asked the average um, person in Washington, maybe one in a hundred would have realized what the U.S. military has been warning about for well over a decade, which is that the dollar is no longer an exorbitant privilege on net. It is an exorbitant burden. Post-COVID, I think we went from one in a hundred people in Washington understanding that to probably 10 or 15 or 20 people in Washington understanding it. So we're nearing a quorum, if you will. And I think the key catalyst to that was the U.S. military had been complaining about the risks to U.S. supply chains for a decade. We can't fight a war against China, which is silly because you're telling us our primary adversary for the next two decades is China. Uh, and nobody listened. Virtually nobody in Washington listened. Uh, Post-COVID, people started listening because it went from, hey, this pie in the sky, if China's our adversary in 10 or 20 years and we're, we're dependent on China, it turned into, we need masks. Okay, call China. And China says, piss off. I'm not giving you the masks until I get all the masks. And that was the point that everybody can sort of understand if you're willing to listen. And so I think there has been this progression from 2008, where Eurasia at a senior level understood the needed for change. You can see in their actions and in the words, the desire and need for change. Washington fought it by and large. Washington is starting to change, um, led by, I think, the defense and, and certain circles in the intelligence community that sees the need to basically move to a system with a neutral reserve asset, whether that, you know, a gold is, is where it appears to be moving at the moment, given what you're seeing in terms of central banks, et cetera. 
but there's no reason something like a bit, well, not something like, there's no reason that Bitcoin couldn't theoretically fulfill that role, um, whether it be an official level, which doesn't look like there's any momentum for it or minimum momentum for it now, uh, or at a de facto uh, with the people role, if you will. Yeah, so that kind of brings back to the original thread uh, that spurred this conversation and, um, you know, Russia being able to corner the LBMA and the COMEX and, and all that. Can you walk us through what we would see if that were happening? And a lot has happened in those two weeks since you made that tweet thread. So is that still looking like a possibility? Yeah, the tweet thread was really just pointing out that it's it's not well understood and sort of, you know, and talked about in polite company, but I'm from Cleveland. So, you know, it's that uh, <laughs> doesn't apply to me, I guess. Um, but what, in sort of the polite finance circles in the financial money centers, it's not well understood that that the Achilles heel of the dollar system as it's been structured since 71 is 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 the unallocated gold markets uh, centered in London primarily. In other words, um, it, you know, COMEX has a lot of leverage, but it, it's a futures market, right? So there's there's buyers and sellers. There should there shouldn't be any real imbalances. In London, there's this unallocated market where it's just unallocated promises of unknown magnitude against a, a, a pile of finite gold reserves. And so uh, right now, the oil market's uh, about 20x bigger than the physical gold market in annual production terms, let alone all the gas market on top of that, let alone any other commodity markets on top of that, which have all gotten much bigger in the last couple of weeks, but we're getting bigger on a relative basis anyway. And so the point is, is that if you wanted to force, it's effectively, again, theoretically possible, uh, you know, as, as Yogi Berra said, there's, you know, the difference in, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice and in practice there is. Uh, but in theory, if you look at uh, the size of the oil market, how little gold there really is at these places, uh, you can basically run a version of what the Hunt brothers did in silver in 1980. Uh, and while the Hunt brothers were able to be shut down in their initiatives based on a changing of the rules by COMEX, um, legal slash regulatory pressure, brokers cutting their credit lines, uh, brokers cutting their credit lines for Russia is the world trying to shut off Russian oil. You know, if you have to stop consuming oil. The problem with cons stopping consuming Russian oil is as we're seeing, we're in a supply demand scenario for oil that's not conducive to doing that without uh, causing a super spike in oil, without causing a recession, and a recession with Western sovereign balance sheets where they are, are not a possibility without the Western sovereigns either defaulting on their sovereign debt or their central banks printing money to cover the difference into that, that energy super spike. And so I think uh, it ties back to this point of, exploiting this, this, these, these multiple systemic weaknesses that have developed over time. Um, like I said, there's no theoretical reason that couldn't happen. How does that end up impacting the dollar is pretty straightforward. It's, it's uh, basically uh, gold competes with treasuries as the primary reserve asset of the world. Um, and again, not talked about in, in polite company, but I'm from Cleveland. So, uh, the reality is, is that global central banks have bought three times more gold than treasuries since 2014. So this, this move is already afoot. 
Uh, but gold's not big enough to serve in the role it would need to be. If, if Russia or somebody else made gold big enough to serve as a neutral reserve asset, that would begin to uh, future demand for treasuries, uh, which would then throw back the uh, need for financing the U.S. deficits, which are structural, growing, and they're going to get a lot bigger. Uh, they'd throw them back onto the U.S. And at that point, the U.S. faces a choice, financing themselves. We don't have the balance sheet without causing recession, uh, slash spending. And really, when you look at what U.S. is spending money on, just Treasury spending, entitlements, and defense are 120% of tax receipts, and tax receipts are at all-time highs. So you'd have to you'd have to slash some really big line items and very politically unpopular line items. That's not going to happen. Or the Fed's going to print the difference. And if, again, that gets you back to this sort of Fed printing the difference into an inflation spike. And so when you look at these terms, from a big picture perspective, it seems pretty clear to me that sort of the, the, the big picture game, the meta game that is being run by Russia, I think supported by China. There's a lot of evidence now that it's supported by China uh, versus a week ago, two weeks ago, uh, that it's basically in a way forcing this system uh, to change. And so that's sort of the, I think the dynamics, at least you can kind of see where the pressure points might lie and how they might unfold if something like that were to happen. So given all that, are you surprised that the, you know, the dollar's performance over the last week, we've seen a huge rise in DXY, so relative to other large currencies, and you know, um, obviously it's fallen against gold, but it has risen against other currencies. And so, I don't know, I just kind of look at that as a, it's getting less multipolar actually in currencies, right? There's if the euro goes under because of all this, or you know that, that there's stresses in the euro system, then uh, the dollar just grows, and I can see a, a like a final showdown between gold, Bitcoin, and the dollar, or something like that. So, uh, can you talk maybe about DXY and what you think about that? Sure. Yeah. To answer your question, I'm not surprised uh, that DXY rose, right? Because it's been the funding currency. You've got this giant euro dollar system where you've got dollar denominated loans. And so anytime you're going to get economic stress, the DXY is going to rise against, I mean, as a practical matter, it's the euro in the end. Um, with that said, the dollar has collapsed against oil. Uh, it's, you know, everyone was kind of high five and look, we call, you know, the ruble fell 50% against the dollar. Not a lot of people high five and that the dollar fell 50% against oil uh, at, in the same time horizon. And this gets back to this point I made before, which is uh, the real value in the dollar system is not the dollar, it's oil. So there's these two, this is the fundamental disagreement, which is the Americans say the dollar's the value and look, the dollar's going up. And the Russians are saying, no, it's oil, but oil's going up. And uh, that's ultimately why Eurasia wants to move to this multi-currency system, right? Because if the dollar's the value, the Americans have all the power. If the oil's the value, then it's a more balanced system uh, for everybody else. Um, you know, in theory, you know, DXY could be at 200 and there'll be gasoline shortages in the United States. We'll be standing in line with guns waiting for, you know, to, for Phillips, right? Because oil, you know, there won't be any. And so they, that's almost a, 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 an extreme example, but extremes inform the means of, is the dollar rising or is the dollar falling and where's the real value? Um, 
you're seeing it all over right now. Countries are shutting down exports because they're afraid of not getting supplies of commodities. You are you, you have the financialized America and, and investors saying, look, the DXY is rising. We're still the kings while the world is sitting around dumping dollars to buy wheat, oil, gas, palladium, nickel, uh, gold, silver. What's the real value here? And so I think there is this, again, it's really just two polar opposite views. And I think really what Putin and China are trying to enforce is as the creditors of this system is, look, no, the dollar isn't a value. I don't care if the DXY is up. Oil's, oil's the value. Uh, production's the value. And we're, we want to be paid commensurately. So I think there's, you know, I think we're watching in real time this fight between these two worlds of financialized world and real world. My fellow clubs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone. Whether you are a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. Want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. I think that that's really interesting. And, you know, a lot of people in the Bitcoin space, Parker Lewis wrote an excellent article uh, titled Bitcoin is the Great Definancialization. We look at mining as kind of this thing that ties Bitcoin to reality and production a little bit more than uh, what the current system is set up to be and kind of transitioning out of, you know, what we're seeing immediately and, and zooming out a little bit, you know, people have been talking about this is the end of the World War II, post-World War II kind of era. Uh, the U.S. dollar hegemony is over. These sanctions are exposing, you know, the lack of ownership. Uh, within the existing dollar system, which brings in the question, what is real value today? And and the dollar kind of losing trust. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what happens next? You know, is is Russia and 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 China's kind of call on this system? Uh, does that bring down, you know, the second best? Does that bring down Europe? Like, what what's what's that like next step? Uh, it seems as though you've been able to kind of be on top of things. The thread that, that inspired this is now prophetic uh, three weeks later. So uh, I guess what, what happens next here? What I think, and this ties into Ansel's point about, I think ground zero of what has already transpired is Europe, right? In terms of energy costs and uh, economic collapse, right? I mean, you're seeing hyperinflation in energy costs. Uh, full stop. I mean, energy costs, electric, electricity costs in, in Italy are up 50% in the last week. You know, I don't know how many months in a row you need that to happen, but the IMF definition is 50% a month of something for hyperinflation. So you are 
in the very short run, at least seeing a hyperinflation in electricity costs, gas costs, um, nickel costs, palladium costs, a lot of different things in Europe. Uh, and you're just, it's, production is not going to be able to be sustained. Margins are not gonna be able to be sustained, consumer spending, et cetera, in Europe. Back in 1998, when I was you know, three, to, three or four years into this business, Russia defaulted. And within a month, uh, with the world much less levered, demographics much better, China, nothing but a, you know, an emerging market backwater, uh, oil at 20, not 120. Within a month, month and a half, the system, the financial system nearly collapsed through the link of, of long-term capital manager. It required a Fed bailout uh, orchestrated by Wall Street. Uh, after a relatively irrelevant Russia compared to today, uh, particularly since they weren't paired with China, uh, collapsed. Uh, or defaulted, excuse me. So there's this view, and I see it almost every day. It's like, well, it's, I mean, the Fed was talking about it this last weekend. It's, it's, it's just Russia. And to me, that is just so misplaced. You're already seeing the, the contagion in Europe. Uh, the contagion in Europe is going to spread to European banks. I mean, I saw a headline, I tweeted about it yesterday. Your Deutsche Bank said, you know, we, we've significantly reduced our Russian exposure. I'm like, no, you haven't. I mean, unless you have, you know, unless Deutsche Bank has no more Deutsche customers who are buying energy from Russia, which is inflated by, you know, 50 to 100 percent last month, you still have a lot of Russian exposure. And so there's this wishful thinking slash lack of second derivative thinking or, you know, inappropriate first principles thinking, however you want to define it. There's going to be a contagion and, and you're going to see in the European slowdown. Then you'll see it in European banks. European banks, listen, the American banks are in great shape. They are. Uh, with that said, you're going to see shoot first, ask questions later, uh, because, you know, I've got 30 years of experience, 25 years of experience. Like when you have a banking problem somewhere, it ends up being a banking problem somewhere else. The only question is how long. Uh, you'll see stocks taken out here. Uh, you've already started to see that. I think it will get worse. Stocks drive uh, marginal consumption in the United States. They drive marginal tax receipts. And I think ultimately where this goes is this dynamic that nobody's looking at is, is the sovereign balance sheet side. If tax receipts start falling, when you can't even cover your, in, your, your treasury spending, your entitlements, and your defense, let alone everything else the federal government spends money on, with tax receipts at all-time highs inflated by 12% nominal GDP growth last year, what are you going to do? You're going to have a choice. You start, you start, you're going to have either slash defense spending in the middle of a showdown with Russia. Nope. You're going to start, you're going to have the treasury come out and say, you know, effective next month, we're going to only make every other interest coupon on treasuries and we're going to cut all treasury stimulus effective immediately. Nope. Because cutting the stimulus will make GDP fall faster, make tax receipts fall faster, which will make your problem worse, not better. Or you say to baby boomers, seven months before an election, starting next month, we're going to start skipping every other month on the Social Security payments. Nope. Or you're going to go to the Fed and say, yeah, I know oil's at 125 on its way to 140, but you're going to finance the difference. That's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. And 99% and of Wall Street is going, there's no way the Fed's going to loosen into a inflation spike. They're not going to have a choice. And if this is the this is the big, not even misperception, no perception. 
There's nobody doing any real work on the sovereign balance sheet of the United States. There's nobody doing any real work on the balance of payments of the United States because it hasn't mattered for 50 years. It matters now due to some of these other things we, we're talking about and these actions that Russia and China have taken have simply taken what was inevitable anyway uh, and brought it forward in a big hurry in an election year, which only puts the pressure on them. Yeah, you mentioned Deutsche. Um, I saw a story about uh, Credit Suisse and how they are exposed to Russian CDS. So, I mean, that those European banks, they are so... They're, they're in such a bad position, exposed to Russia, exposed to these credit default swaps, the weapons of mass financial destruction. Um, I, I am very, very bearish on Europe. And that's why I'm somewhat bullish on the dollar at this point, because where is all that European capital going to flow? I, I think it's going to flee and it's going to go into dollar, dollar denominated assets. And I mean, that could boost up price increases in everything. But, you know, the CPI can continue to go up. Um yeah, and I that it's it puts uh, the Fed in a quagmire. So uh, I I don't know what to expect, but Bitcoin in this situation and gold too, as gold is outperforming right now, it's just the best of all worlds for those prices, right? Wouldn't you say that gold and Bitcoin stand to benefit amongst the top asset, probably outperform everything over the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I don't know about the next couple of years, very possible, but I, uh, we've been saying to our clients over the last two weeks, really, since Russia went in, the only things to us that I feel comfortable owning, the only thing I own that I, that I feel comfortable owning or adding to personally uh, in terms of owning at the moment is a really comfortable, at least, let me put it that way. The only things I have a high degree of comfort owning, because I still do own other things, uh, are dollars, gold, Bitcoin. And, and it's probably an order of gold, probably gold dollars, Bitcoin, uh, just based on some of the near term, you know, some of the near term correlations between Bitcoin and, and, and tech and, and uh, risk assets broadly. I think that correlation is going, it started to break a little bit last week. Uh, I think it's going to continue to break the correlation between Bitcoin and, and big tech uh, over time. You know, the fact that you started to see that relationship break down a little bit last week. I thought was a potentially important sign. You know, we'll see if we get some follow through. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, there's just, you know, I mean, it, it's very, it's been very interesting so far this week. Um, you know, U.S. Treasury long bonds have gotten hammered, which for all of my career up until March 2020, arguably, were when you had a risk off like this, when you had a crisis like this, the world flocked into long dated treasuries. They're not going there. there there's an issue. It's, it's a pretty unique time. Switching gears, this is a, a there is no segue here, but uh, what if the Russian or the Ukrainian situation ends sooner rather than later? You know, I think everyone's kind of pricing in a quagmire that's going to take six months, a year, maybe two years or something like that. What happens if, you know, I just saw today that Zelensky is willing to talk, uh, maybe make some concessions on his hard, hard stance on the, the NATO stuff. So uh, what if, you know, a week or two from now, this there is some sort of deal on the table and markets are completely on the wrong side of this trade. And and in the meantime, right, we have also been talking to Venezuela and doing this Iran, Iranian deal. Like what happens if in two weeks from now, we're instead of uh, facing a, you know, a shortage of oil, we're, we're facing the prospect of huge oil surge of, in production, right, as everything's wrapping up. 
Yeah, I think from a tactical perspective, that kind of thing is very possible, right? Um, where you can get uh, uh, some sort of uh, de-escalation resolution uh, favorable to both sides. You take the war premium out of commodities, broadly speaking. I think oil probably falls the most in that case, but I think gold would fall too. Um, you probably get uh, you know growth stocks and stocks broadly in the U.S. to rise. Tactically, I would expect that sort of unwind to happen. Now, from a intermediate terms, I, I think that would be relatively brief in terms of that unwind. It could be sharp, but I think it'll be brief. And the reason I think that is, is think about what we're saying here. Russia went into, NATO said, we're going to put them in NATO. Russia said no, and Russia won. What we will be seeing is a mark to market of relative global power levels. I don't think there's going to be any de-escalation without Russia getting what they want on this. At least Putin's been pretty clear about that. And Zelensky has said, okay, you know, in the comments today, we're willing to go, we're willing to be neutral. I'll sign that. That's fine. When you see signs that the United States, I mean, we have been actively trying to upset or or undermine the Venezuela, the Venezuelan government, the Venezuelan regime for 20 years, 10 years. Uh, we have been actively trying to undermine, hurt, sanction the Iranian government for 40 years. So when the U.S. government, who consensus has all the, re you know, king dollar, you know, hashtag America, you know, the dollar's king dollar. Why is king dollar panhandling for oil in Venezuela? Why is king dollar panhandling for oil in Iran? And again, I, I don't mean to be so harsh, but I think it's important we take a step back to see the big picture, which is this event over the last two weeks is showing a change in relative global power levels, which was Putin's entire point. You couldn't survive two weeks with without going to Iran without going to Venezuela, who, by the way, are Russian client states in both cases. I mean, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that. You know, we go to the, the Saudis and what the Saudis tell us, don't bother. We're, we're good. We're going to stick with the agreement. All right. So there's there's a way from the tactical unwind, which I agree you could see. I think there is, again, pointing to this important secular change that just happened that I don't think, again, because everyone's understandably trying to manage their risk, their positions, things are moving around. I mean, if you don't manage that risk in the very short term with these movements, you get carried out, you're not going to get to see the intermediate term. But I think once things settle down, you know, if we do get a de-escalation, we get this unwind, people are, yeah, they're going to sell oil and they're going to buy stocks and they're going to sell gold. And then they're going to sit there and go, wait a second, like whatever we thought we leverage we had, three weeks ago, we need to mark that amount of leverage we have down by, I don't know, 20%, 30%, 40%, whatever, uh, relative power levels. And you say, okay, Eurasia is much more influential. What does that mean? Uh, America all of a sudden realizes, oh God, this whole green thing is you know, the wrong direction. And you start seeing reshoring, reinvestment, reindustrialization in America accelerated meaningfully. Well, None of that can happen with the dollar system as it's structured. None of it. Our job is to run deficits, supply dollars. That's it. So if we're going to do these things that have, to, to address these weaknesses that have been exposed by the last two weeks, right? The, the whole, you know, we're going to reshore, you know, or I'm so angry we have no leverage to, to, to address what Putin's doing. And 
the dollar is going to be reserve status. The post the, the post $71 system as structured is an asset for America. Those are fundamentally mutually exclusive positions. You have to change the dollar system if you want to address the weaknesses and the imbalances that have been exposed over the last two weeks, three weeks. And I think they will they we will start to do that, right? So we'll start to see things like, hey, President Biden, you know, $500 billion stimulus for a fast track for a semiconductor industry. Where are we going to get the money? Fed's going to print it all. President Biden, $500 billion stimulus for energy infrastructure and pipelines. Where are we going to get the money? Fed's going to print it all. Um, now, maybe we pull back on some defense stuff to net it out. But again, these are things that the dollar system post-71 was, you guys make the stuff, we'll buy it from you, and then you recycle the dollars. And this, to address the issues that have been revealed over the last two, three weeks, that we can't, Putin's got us by the short hairs, we can't cut out his oil without collapsing our own system. To address that issue and to address it with China, which we haven't even touched on yet, the dollar system has to be fundamentally reordered. And I think this is understood, at least in certain circles in Washington and elsewhere around the world. You know, in these things, you know, that's when I say, tactically, you get this online. But as markets sort of settle down and go, oh, God, I don't want to sell oil. I need to buy oil. I don't want to sell gold. I need to buy gold. I don't want to sell Bitcoin. I want to buy Bitcoin. I don't want to... Like, I don't want to sell and I want to buy American industrials because they're going to be building a bunch of this stuff. So the, the thing you want to sell in that case is, oh, God, I got to get out of bonds. They're going to get, you know, not that they'll get beat up on a on a on a on a nominal basis. I don't think they will. But think if you're you own a bond fund and the Biden administration starts addressing, you know, come, you know printing money to address these very real geostrategic issues that were just revealed. The bond market's expecting transitory CPI. What what Biden will be announcing is CPI is not going to be seven and a half percent this year going to two. It's going to be seven and a half going to ten for the next five years, and the bond market is going to go. Oh God, you know it'll, it'll be like the E Trade baby going like throwing up on itself. And of course, the problem is that the sovereign balance sheet of the United States can't afford more than probably three percent, maybe four if we're really lucky. Right, every hundred basis points of interest rate is pro forma. 9% of tax receipts. And that assumes tax receipts, which are highly interest rate sensitive, don't fall as rates rise. So it's probably more like pro forma, 10 to 12% for every 100 basis points, rising non-linearly as rates rise. And so what's that mean? That means to finance this stuff, Fed's going to have to cap yields. It's just, you basically will be moving to a wartime footing after the war. And so it's, it's, I think we're in for a very highly inflationary, secularly, structurally, five, 10 years. Well, what's what would you say, which prices is, is more accurate, the oil price or the bond market? Oil. Oil's got a low stock to flow ratio. Oil is needed. Uh, there's only so many places you can store oil. That's why I say you have the low stock to flow ratio. You can only have so many derivatives to influence its price. The bond market you know, the Fed's balance sheet going from three to nine over the last two years, three trillion, nine trillion, three point, three, you know, four trillion to nine trillion over the last two years. There's a non-economic buyer there. Where's he getting his capital? Printing press. You know, to me, I don't know how much that has helped bond prices, but it, to me, it's strange credulity to say that the Fed's buying of $5 trillion in bonds over the last two years has not helped bond prices. To me, that's, it's, 
you know, yeah, and if you say, okay, it hasn't helped because the world would have crashed and everyone would have bought bonds. Yeah, but that ignores, again, the second order effect of you need stocks to go up to have the tax receipts to pay the interest on those bonds and, and, and. So there's a little bit of this, you know, chicken and egg problem. But uh, I, I think if you X out the war premium in oil, I think oil's you know, oil was up 100 percent before, you know, before Putin really started rattling any sabers, you know, off the off, you know, up year 100 percent year over year. Right. It had gone from 45 to 85. So whatever, 80 uh, percent. So I, I think oil's a better. Re I mean, I, I know to hedge my inflation, I'd much rather own oil than bonds, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I just uh, I asked because, you know, the the bond market is the deepest, most sophisticated market out there. Uh, even though oil is obviously very deep and very sophisticated, uh, but yeah, that's it's an interesting duel there. Which which uh, which price is actually the smart money, and which price is kind of short term? Because you know, oil price does remind me a lot of two thousand and eight. If you look at the chart, right, the the two thousand eight financial crisis, oil goes through the roof, which is right around where we're at today, actually, and then we had a precipitous drop, and I. I I've been an actual oil bear and I've been on the wrong side of that trade for, you know, now two years since uh, Corona. But, um, you know, I think if, if you look at like the total amount of oil used in the world uh, pre-Corona, it was around 100 million barrels a day. And now it's 96. It hasn't recovered. Um, the U.S. has spare capacity that it can bring back online uh, if, you know, the ESG people just get out of the way. So, um you know, I, I, I tend to think the opposite way. I tend to think that the bond market is more correct and the oil is just in, in a blow off top right now. So um, what, what are your thoughts on that? The thing for me is, is I like that. I, I think it could be in a blow off, you know, a blow off top related to the war premium that could reverse in the short run due to, you know, if you get a de-escalation. Uh, if we don't get a de-escalation, it's going higher in my view. The thing that is very different than 2008 is the U.S.'s sovereign balance sheet. I want to say when oil crashed, then we had the nasty recession, you know, because of the nasty recession, the great financial crisis, U.S. debt to GDP was, I want to say 60%, maybe 70%. It's 122% now. And U.S. debt to GDP or deficit as a percent of GDP then was 2% in 08. Uh, it's 12 uh, at the end of last year. Last three recessions, you've had uh, debt deficit as a percent of GDP has risen 300 at the low end, a uh, thousand basis points of GDP at the high end, right? So you'll be looking at deficit as a percent of GDP going from 12 to 15 to 22 percent of GDP. So 15 uh, percent of GDP is 3.3 trillion in deficits, and 22 is 4.5 trillion in deficits if we have another recession caused by oil. And that's why it gets into this dynamic of, okay, let's say oil does cause this recession. U.S., this, fiscal, this balance sheet, this fiscal issue, how do we resolve this? And who, who, who buys $4.4 Who buys $3.3 in, in treasuries? Are the Russians? Hmm. Chinese? No. Um, I mean, the Americans just told people FX reserves are not money good. They just told the whole world. We're, we're sanctioning Russian FX reserves. Don't buy them. So now, who's going to buy those FX reserves? <laughs> it's the Fed with printed money. And that's where I think, you know, it, we're getting into this weird time where 
the model of the last 40 years is 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 breaking in real time this and this is something you know this is, is not this is all i'm doing is looking at america like and just taking away you know the, the 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 american flag off the masthead like if this was turkey we were describing another twin deficit nation this would be hard you know when turkey has a recession with a twin deficit you know turkish bonds sell off the currency goes down um right in dollar turn you know dollars go up uh, against turkish lira like we saw last year same thing with argentina simply again that you know i think i said to someone uh earlier today was like Look, if you there's a great uh, there's a great piece of work that was done by uh, Hirschman Capital, citing uh, Rogoff and Reinhardt's work of eight or nine years ago uh, in the sovereign debt. And the, in the summer 2020, he said, "Look, over the last 120 years, there've been there've been I don't know 100 and how many was it? I guess it was 53 episodes, maybe uh, over the last 120 years where a nation's debt to GDP got to 130 percent." 98% of those were resolved via high inflation or hyperinflation, you know, basically restructuring the debt, lowering the debt via high or hyperinflation. And so you have on one side this 98% chance that that's what's going to happen. And we started to see it in 2021 and a 2% chance it won't. And everybody's betting on the 2% and pointing at Japan going, well, Japan didn't, so we won't. But Japan's literally 180 degrees opposite setup of the US. So it's, I think if we get, I think we're going to get a recession, given what oil's already done. But again, then I think it's critical to look at the second derivative that nobody's looking at, which is U.S. sovereign balance sheet is not where it was in 2014, in 2008, in 2000. I mean, in 98, when, when Russia defaulted and almost collapsed the system here, the U.S. was running surpluses. We literally were running, the government was borrowing nothing. They were running a surplus, and it still was nearly enough to collapse the system. So there's I just think it's the second derivative of 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 the sovereign balance sheet of the U.S. that is really um, underappreciated. I have a quick comment, and then I'll uh, pass it off to CK because I know he's uh, been chomping at the bit here. Out of those fifty-three, how many were global reserve currencies? I believe I believe the U.K. went through uh, went through it. I'd have to double check the data, but uh, if you look at post World War One. Uh, really, to me, the world looks a lot like post-World War I in some facets. We're in a global sovereign debt bubble. We had a stock bubble, kicked it upstairs, a banking system, housing bubble, kicked it upstairs, the sovereign debt. There's nowhere else to kick a sovereign debt level other than the currency. And you say Europe had a, I would say the last global sovereign debt bubble was after World War I. The UK held on for the longest as global reserve currency, but it required unemployment at 8 to 10% for 10 years before they finally devalued. There's no political will here to set that type of austerity. Again, you you would have to slash defense, you'd have to slash uh, entitlements, you'd have to uh, slash probably treasury stimulus. So you would you would again, given the complexity of the system now versus then, I don't think that's possible. Um, and even then, they eventually devalued the pound significantly. Uh, they eventually ended their reserve currency role. And by 1940, 1939, when we went to when they went to war with Germany, my understanding is the Americans would not accept the British pound uh, in the Lend-Lease program. Only dollars or gold. So the Americans, the creditor, refused the global reserve currency with a 300-year history, 250-year history, uh, in war. Our best friend, no less. So I, I, I think. You know, now, to your point, most of them were not the global reserve currency. That has clearly bought us a lot of time. Uh, the $64,000 question is how much more time does it buy us? 
and I think that then ties into some of the some of the dynamics we're seeing geopolitically, oil balance sheet, et cetera. So, Luke, I mean, as listening to you, you know, really at the heart of what you are articulating is, you know, a, a shift in global trust and and how trust is allocated. And, you know, you're talking about on different timescales that trust really changing and, and, you know, and then behavior changing, you know, kind of geopolitically. You know, I see and we've talked about on this show uh, a much more localized world, which you kind of talked about is, you know, the Fed will start financing, you know, building out uh, building out chip foundries and infrastructure and uh, oil capacity, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about a world on this kind of like localization standard? And, you know, is there an opportunity for something like a CBDC to come in? You know, people talk about where, you know, China's CBDC pl- comes into play here or, uh, I mean, again, our thesis here is that it's it's really a dollar and Bitcoin game to play despite localization. Um, it seems as though there's some alignment with the, with the thesis here that, you know, kind of the global world order is shaking up a little bit. And there's this opportunity to to kind of grab that that uh, that pristine spot as like this global reserve. I want to pass it back to you. Sure. Yeah, I mean, if you think about Bitcoin, right, to me, one of the message of Bitcoin is, is energy is more important than fiat, right? I mean, at at its core, um, that's what proof of work is, right? Energy is the real value, not not whatever I say it is, right? Um, And so I think this this breakdown in in the rules-based global order as it's been structured for the last 30, 40 years in particular, I think is really just a bunch of nations acting in their own mostly enlightened self-interest, which is to say, you know, when you, when you, when you go back four years, you can see Kyle Bass on CNBC saying, look, you know, the, the Chinese buy a lot of oil and it grows every year and oil's prices are going up and oil's only priced in dollars. And so if we can just squeeze the amount of oil price higher then the Chinese are going to run out of dollars and they're going to have a a currency crisis like the Southeast Asian countries did in the late nineties. And the Chinese are just going, yeah, no, we're not, we're that's, that's not acceptable to us. And we can think whatever we want about the CCP and I'm not necessarily a big fan of some of the things, all those things doesn't matter. They're not going to sit around and let, you know, something like that, you know, be choked off. Europeans are in the same position. The Japanese are in the same position. And so they need to find this, I think this relocalization, this breakup of, of, of the rules-based globalization of the last 30, 40 years is really a matter of national security to be able to print their own currencies for oil and energy and commodities that they're all short, but doing so in a way that doesn't require them to do what the Americans did. What we chose to do was, was to basically send all of our factories to low-cost countries to create the deficits, right? We had to dishoard ourselves of factories to do this. They don't want to do that. That's politically unacceptable for, in particular, Japan, China, Europe. So they're not going to do that. So, okay, you have to settle in something. They don't, they're, they're, their domestic internet and you know, sovereign bond markets aren't big enough, aren't trusted enough. Uh, there's rule of law issues. There's, again, not, 
There's deficit issues relative to what I just described in terms of deindustrialization that has not happened there for political reasons. And so you have to find a neutral reserve asset. You have to settle in something that everybody trusts. And so I think your, your, your point of trust is, is a really good one. And so then it gets to, okay, what do they trust? You've got gold with a 5,000 year history, and that's clearly been, they're moving toward that. Uh, and I think Bitcoin can work in that way. Um, if it, it can work in that way, full stop. The question then is, is how, how does that path look given that is not where the established authorities are moving at the moment? Uh, they're moving toward gold. How does that, you know, can that be then uh, gamed or forced or encouraged by American authorities, which may have an interest in doing that? depending on situation and events. Yeah, very interesting. One, one of my critiques of the gold standard, I mean, I'm coming from a gold bug world. I was a gold bug until I became a Bitcoiner, but uh, is that there is, you know, gold is captured. It's sitting at the central banks. And why, if someone is so mad at the United States for freezing their reserves, their, uh, you know, foreign reserves right now, what's to stop the United States from freezing their gold in New York City, right? And so I think that there are a, a lot of big hurdles to the gold system. What, what's your response to that? Yeah, well, it's absolutely an issue, right? I think ultimately, you know, when you, when you see U.S. senators today saying, you know, we should tamp down on Russia's gold, number one, most of Russia's gold's in Russia, so good luck with that. These senators are encouraging a run on the gold, the New York Fed. I mean, again, the the number of actors you know, people say well it's only bad actors the number of countries that have not been considered bad actors by the united states at some point in the last 80 years is exceedingly short exceedingly like i just said we we stuck it to the brits in world war ii like, we don't want your reserve currency sterling gold or dollars right um but everybody you know it's a very short list of countries and so when the U.S. does things like this, which is an absolute risk with gold, um, and, and it's a risk for investors in terms of paper proxies for gold, most of which have some version of cash settlement language in them, force majeure language. Uh, if you don't hold it, you don't own it, full stop. And so I think you're likely to see, you know, basically a version of global, if you don't hold it, you don't own it evolving in coming in coming years as a result of what we've seen in the last two weeks i agree yeah yeah i mean i, I think that that's the lesson right now so the lesson is if you don't hold it you don't own it this conversation makes me bullish on bitcoin because it's the easiest thing for anyone to hold i, I do think it's really a, a global trust shift uh, that, that it comes down to. Luke, we have to wrap up. I want to give you back the mic to close out this conversation and I want to say thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate your insights. And I found this incredibly, incredibly valuable. Well, thanks for having me on. It was great to be here. Enjoyed catching up and uh, wish you all the best of luck. I guess, can you uh, tell the audience where they can learn more about you? Sure. And uh, yeah. Absolutely. It's uh, you check us out at fftt-llc.com. Uh, gives updates in terms of what we're up to, some of our research product offerings, ranging from institutional to mass market product offerings. Um, and uh, I've got a pretty active Twitter feed, uh, at Luke Groman, L-U-K-E-G-R-O-M-E-N. Uh, ongoing thoughts uh, uh, there as well. Must follow Twitter account, that's for sure. Thank you. 
All right. Awesome. Well, again, Luke, thank you so much to all the Bitcoiners out there. Bitcoiners out there, make sure to follow Luke. Make sure to follow me. Make sure to follow Ansel. Make sure to subscribe to the show and uh, passing it back over to Q. Thanks again, Luke. Peace. Right. Thanks, guys. Yeah.